tonight, if you have a Bible, I want you to keep it handy. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and we're also going to be in uh, 2 Samuel 7, where our Old Testament reading came from today. I think a lot of us, um, during this season of staying at home, uh, have uh, availed ourselves a lot of Netflix and the other streaming services. Um, how many of you in here have... Uh, indulged in the crown watching the crown anybody any crown fans so um they uh uh the, there's there's been con controversy i'm trying to say it like the brits do but there's been controversy about uh about how realistic it is you know um because that's what we do when we go to netflix is we're looking for realism um and uh so a lot of the uh folks who are sensitive to the royals concerns or like, this is, this is fiction, please, please, please remember. Charles and Diana had a wonderful marriage and, uh, and the queen doesn't kick the corgis, corgis, corgis. Um, and I don't think she does. Anyway, um, but the one thing that the crown gets right uh, all the way through, and it, I think the crown has been really fascinating to watch, is that the crown highlights the humanity of, the, of all of the royals. Um, and, uh, and, 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 as you watch it, you might come away going, man, if that's what human is, I'm not sure that I want to be that. It's so, you know, sometimes it's so, so depressing and so bad. Um, but I hope it is a reminder to us. Uh, we, we've, here in the United States, we've never been prone uh, to love on royals very much. Uh, it's just not in our American uh, DNA. But the, the show is a great reminder that uh, all of us on this planet are, are walking with feet of clay. And our Old Testament reading today from 2 Samuel reminds us of this too. Although 2 Samuel 7 is wonderfully a, a, a place where David does really well, King David that is. But we're reminded throughout all of David's story that he was incredibly human and incredibly fallible. So this is the last, uh, th this night is the last of our four-part series on uh, vocations or the vocations of Christ um, and we're going to be talking about Christ's vocation as king and there's this juxtaposition of David the king who's very human and fallible and Christ the king the one who is Lord over all and we're going to explore that uh, a little bit tonight as we uh, engage these passages for the next couple of minutes so let's take a moment let me pray for us and we'll uh, continue on Oh Lord, at our best, we are weak and confused and we need guidance. Help us recognize your guidance in scripture, in the ways you impress your desires upon our hearts and in your people, the church. Teach us to obey you as the king that you are, that we may live free in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of your son and through your Holy Spirit. Amen. At Wheatland, we pray the prayer of repentance every week. Uh, we're going to pray it in a few minute, moments before we share in the Lord's Supper. Um, we do this because it's a good and right and joyful thing. Um, repentance is a good and right and joyful thing. And those words come out of the Book of Common Prayer too. Um, but we pray the prayer of repentance for a couple of different reasons. One, one of the first reasons that we pray from the prayer of, the prayer of repentance 
is that we need to repent from our sin. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but uh, uh, every once in a while you commit a sin. Um, and by every once in a while, you know, every eight or ten breaths, perhaps. I'm not sure how, how often it is for you guys. But, but sin is a present reality, even though we're seeking to be transformed and changed. So we need to repent of sin. We need to turn away from it. So that's one obvious reason that we pray the prayer of repentance. But we also pray the prayer of repentance because we need to repent from inadequate ideas of God and inadequate ideas of ourselves. And I think the story that we heard read, that Meredith read for us earlier, is a great example of David repenting of an inadequate idea of God. Now, the word repentance in its most literal form means to change one's mind. So we change our minds about the sin that we were embracing, but we also change our minds about how we understand certain things. And if Christians don't need to continually repent in this respect, the, hist the last 2,000 years would look radically different, wouldn't it? We get crazy ideas in our minds about how things are supposed to go and how things are supposed to operate. Um, so again, repentance certainly fits when we do the wrong thing, uh, but it also is appropriate for us in learning to change our mind. Um, and changing our mind means getting behind the sin in order to root out the root of that sin. And we do that by thinking better about who God is. I didn't write this in my notes, but uh, it's, um, uh, I can see his face, the author, um, uh, help me out, Mike. Um, the, the most important thing about, about ourselves is what we think about God. What's his name? Tozer, that's right, A.W. Tozer. All I could think of was True Blood, and I knew I was getting going the wrong direction. And there's an author named True Blood. I'm not talking about this television show. But, um, but Tozer says the most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about God. This is, this is a huge, huge thing for us to embrace. S keep in mind, some of our ideas about God are just simply sub-Christian. Um, even if we think they're Christian, quite often they are sub-Christian. And I want us in the year 2020 to think about the ways some Christians that we know of, not in this room and not on Zoom, have behaved. Are you thoroughly and completely and 100% in support of everything that has come out of the mouth of Christians on whatever side of whatever divide there is? I don't know that 2020 has been our greatest public uh, best, best year publicly speaking. Um, so sometimes we simply say things that are sub-Christian. Sometimes we just embrace ideas that are pagan, um, that just simply aren't Christian at all. Ideas that are picked up from sources that are neither biblical nor Christian nor traditional in any way. We're also very secular people, so some of the ideas that we have about God that we need to repent of are rooted in us living in a world that is more secular than we realize, where we're trained, where we're trained to not take God that seriously. That's what secularism does. It's, we often look at it as this big enemy out there, but what it does underneath is it, it really kind of teaches us not to take God that seriously. And then again, some of our ideas about God are simply projections of our best selves. 
this is what the Lord means in my understanding. So I'm just going to assume this is what God is really like. So we need to repent, not just from the bad things that we do, but from our inadequate ideas of God. Repentance is critical. Not because we are so bad, but because we're so easily confused. And sometimes we are so bad. Uh, but more often than not, repentance is critical because we're so easily confused. If you're familiar with the stories of King David, he gets to repent a lot. And bless his heart, he really needs to repent an awful lot. Uh, compare just the actions that we know that David has done uh, in, in the books of First and Second Samuel. He, he makes King Saul, who God took the kingdom away from, he makes King Saul look good uh, half the time. Uh, I mean, King Saul was, I mean, I understand King Saul, jealous and paranoid, you know, that seems more easy to understand than, you know, murder um, and uh, conspiracy to murder and, and various other things that David does. So he gets to repent a lot. He needs to repent a lot. And this repentance, this responsiveness to God is part of why David is called a man after God's own heart. It's not because of what he did all the time, but it's because of how he responded to God. Now, in today's story, just to get you caught up with what's going on, just in case you just walked in to your own house uh, and sat on your own couch, um, David is now, in the story that we're reading, he's now reigning in the city of Jerusalem. Um, it's taken a while for him to get there, but he's gotten there. The tabernacle with the ark is in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, a lot of things have happened on the way there, of course. David was anointed king even while Saul was still king, and God slowly removed Saul from the kingdom, uh, and then uh, and slowly David began to take over. Um, after acquiring the city of Jerusalem, David escorts the Ark of the Covenant, uh, this symbol of God's presence among the people. He escorts it into the city, dancing in the most uh, immodest way that he humiliates and embarrasses his wife. And as he gets settled in the city, he builds for himself a palace made out of cedars. It's the Big Cedar Lodge of Jerusalem, essentially. Um, and I bet the Big Cedar Lodge was in, in Branson is probably nicer. But, uh, but it hits David, and this seems reasonable. While he's sitting in his palace, uh, Nathan comes to him and says, you know, God is with you, David. Do whatever is on your heart to do. And this is really, generally speaking, good advice. And David is like, I need to build God a house. Look at the house that I'm in. God deserves so much more. Ever since their wanderings in the desert, God has met his people in the tabernacle, in a tent. And that was where he was still being worshipped. So as I mentioned, Nathan tells David, and Nathan is his prophet, he says, go do all that you have in mind for the Lord is with you. But then Nathan, shortly after this, gets another message from God. And here we see not only King David responding to God, but we see his prophet Nathan responding to God appropriately. Nathan gets clarity from God. And in verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? And David then says, You don't end sentences with prepositions except in the NRSV. Um, that's, it's okay to do that. Um, are you one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, 
but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Why have you not done this? See, God is not complaining to the people of Israel. At least he's not complaining to them about where he is living. He's not really concerned about that. So if you know the rest of the story, God reaffirms his commitment to David with words that matter for us even today, especially during this season leading up to Christmas. Um, God speaks through Nathan to David and it says, Moreover, and this, by the way, is in verse 11 of chapter 7. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, he's not talking about a house of cedar. He's talking about a house. That is, the people who belong in that house, in that palace, the children, the descendants, uh, the dynasty, uh, dynasty uh, of uh, of David's line. That is the house that God is talking to him about. I tried to say controversy earlier, and I still can't do it. And I am now saying other words uh, oddly. So forgive me. Um, You just get stuck in things. Um, So anyway, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up for you offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is a reference to King Solomon, who comes after David. And King Solomon, uh, sure enough, builds God a temple that is amazing and glorious and, and, uh, and lined with gold. And, you know, read about it. It's really, really, really impressive. But if you read in other places in Scripture... You get the sense that God, even though he's letting Solomon build the temple, you get the sense that God still is just kind of iffy on it. That is, the temple that's being built in Jerusalem is really God accommodating himself to the Israelites. Okay, you wanted a king, I'll let you have a king. You want me to meet you in a temple, I'll meet you in a temple. Even though I've just been wandering around through the desert, and through what is now modern-day Israel. I've been wandering around through all of that territory in this tent, and I was perfectly happy, but this is what you keep pushing for. I'll, I'll allow it. It's great to read, I think it's in Acts chapter 6, when Stephen is giving his speech, uh, recounting the history of Israel to the people who should know better. And then he hits them really hard when he says, uh, about uh, Solomon building God a house. And he says it in such a way that it's like, like you think that was the point? And it really wasn't. But in this instance here, God is reaffirming his covenant with David. And he promises David that he's not going to take his love away from David or David's descendants. There will always be a descendant of David to reside upon the throne. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Again, one of the great parts of the story is how David adjusts his own thinking to God's direction. David could have pushed back. And we see Abraham, we see Moses, we even see David pushing back on God in these really important stories in the Old Testament. But David doesn't do that here. David gets clarity from God. 
In the same way that David had to clarify his understanding of God through the help of the prophet Nathan, so do we. I think that we need to routinely have our thinking about God pushed back on, recalibrated, if you will, to use uh, some language that Nathan uses uh, from his really cool second job. Um, That is, we need to rethink often what our understanding of God is. So through scripture, through regular worship, and through listening to the guidance that we receive from one another, that we receive from God through one another, I think our understanding of who God is starts to get calibrated. And we rely once again on what Tozer says, that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, if David, in his thinking about God, thought what God really needs right now is a temple, I think David might have had a shrunken view of who God was. As if he was just a God like all of the other nations had gods that dwelled in temples. But the God of Israel was not going to be that kind of God. And in the 21st century, with everything that feeds our own thinking about these things, I think we need to rethink, regularly rethink, our understanding of who God is. And we do that, as I said, through those different ways that I mentioned. Um, But also we do that through hearing Scripture, through the celebration of the church year. This season of Advent is a perfect time for us to kind of have our understanding about God purged and cleansed and purified, if you will. Luke chapter 1 that we read earlier today says this. He, meaning Christ, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Christ is to be a king. He is a descendant of David. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Scripture says, the Old Testament scripture tells us all this stuff is going to happen. And this is exactly what takes place. In the earliest years of the church, the early Christians had to wrap their minds around this. Because the reality is, is that most of them didn't see Jesus coming. Almost none of them did. But when they encountered the living, resurrected Christ, and they returned to the scriptures that they were raised on, they began to see it all unfold perfectly for them. And they said, yeah, Jesus is kind of a bolt from the blue, right? Completely unexpected. But then on the other hand, it had to be him. We're totally surprised, but we should have seen it coming. It had to be this way. Jesus was the only one who could fulfill all that had been said about him. And it had to be this Jesus as we see in the New Testament. At the end of the book of Luke, Jesus told his disciples shortly after the resurrection, he said this. He, he, he surprised them, shows up in this meeting where they're, where they're sitting there eating. He says, while they were, this is uh, uh, Luke 24, verse 36. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood up among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified 
and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I can't help but thinking that he's like, Okay, I need to eat in front of you guys. It's going to be good for you, but I wish you would have had something else. And then in verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. His disciples were surprised for good reason. They didn't expect him to be alive again. But then when Jesus appears to him again, he says, Remember all this. This is all written about. You should remember this. For even better reason, they understood that what was written about Jesus in the Old Testament was now making sense to them. They may not have seen it coming, but now that he had arrived, they could tell that it could not have happened any other way. So in one respect, these earliest Christian believers, even in that moment, are repenting and having their opinion of who God is and how God works changed in a way similar to David did, to how David did when Nathan came to him. See, David repents so he can understand God and God's kingdom better, more clearly. Jesus proclaims repentance in his earliest teaching so his disciples could understand the kingdom more clearly. Jesus' disciples, just now in the passage I just read, they experience a change of mind when Jesus appears to them and reminds them that this is how it had to be. This is the way it was foretold. He told them it all makes sense now. So finally, I think all of us need to embrace a lifestyle of repentance or we will miss the kingdom of God. I think that we will miss out on what the kingdom is. We will miss the king himself if we do not practice a lifestyle of repentance. So when we pray the prayer of repentance every week, it's not because we want to sound liturgical in high church. There's not much chance of us coming off as too high church. Um, that's not the reason. It's because every week we're going to enter into this practice, this habit of repenting and of being careful what ideas about God that we embrace that might be harmful to ourselves and to the world. If we don't repent regularly, if we don't recalibrate our spiritual compasses on true north, and I'm pretty sure this is north, um, then we will replace our God's priorities with our priorities. And I think the church teaches us, to, I think some aspects of the church, unfortunately, teaches us to replace God's priorities with our priorities. And sometimes our priorities may be good ones, like building God a house. What could be a nicer idea than that? But this is why repentance is so critical. We often make 
what is good, the enemy of what is right. And this is what David discovered and learned. I want to finish by reading uh, a portion of the Magnificat to you. We heard it, it was our call to worship tonight. Um, when we pray morning prayer throughout the week, we frequently will pray the Magnificat. Um, and, uh, and I love it because it's this prayer of this young girl, teenager, proclaiming God's greatness. But when we pray it during morning prayer, it's a, an important reminder to us um, that we didn't come up with these words on our own. We need these words. We needed a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, however old Mary was, to shame us into understanding what God is like. And the Magnificat proclaims that to us. So listen to these words. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. Uh, did you notice uh, in, in uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel tonight, the line, the rod of Jesse, right? The rod, uh, the power of God, the power of Jesse, the father of David, and now descending all the way to Christ. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. This is the kind of king that we serve. And it is an upside-down kingdom that we serve him in. And because of that, we require regular, regular repentance. So I want to invite you now to pray the prayer of repentance.